You're listening to the 44th Street Podcast, a production of the New York City Bar Association. My name is Tim Peterson, your host and engineer for this program. Just as a note, the opinions expressed here are those of the speaker or speakers and not necessarily those of the New York City Bar Association and are not intended as legal advice. So this is Tim Peterson. We are recording here on March 6, 2019, and I am here with Jeremy Merkel of Wilson Elser. Uh, Jeremy, how are you? I'm well, Tim. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Jeremy, uh, tell me first uh, a little bit about what you do, your practice, your uh, area of expertise, and how it relates to our topic today, which will be ransomware. Sure. So I'm a cybersecurity and data privacy attorney. So much of my day-to-day counseling of clients consists of uh, data breaches and instances of hacking. Uh, We see a lot of those in today's digital economy. So there's certainly a lot of work to be done and helping clients across a range of industries when they are inevitably hacked or experiencing a data breach. So we're talking about ransomware attacks. And an example might be I'm an executive of a company and uh, this company uh, has suffered a ransomware attack. I get a notice that entire system is on lockdown unless I pay uh, a ransom to a third party. How does that work? Is that the normal situation? And what do companies normally do when they are confronted with a, a message like that? So that's a typical situation of how a business or, or an organization discovers that they've been a victim of a ransomware attack. They'll try to log on to their, to their systems and all the files and applications will be encrypted. And they then might find a ransom note that demands payment of a certain amount of money in Bitcoin in exchange for the decryption key in order to unlock their files. Depending on the severity of the attack, whether the company has sufficient backups, whether they can continue operating without the data that's been encrypted, often dictates whether they'll pay the ransom. The U.S. government will take the stance that a company should not pay a ransom because it's essentially funding criminal or terrorism or, or terrorist activity. But for our clients that come to us in the midst of an attack, the answer is not so simple. So what assurances, let's say I'm the CEO of a company and I get a ransomware letter, ransomware demand, and they tell me not to go to the FBI or uh, other law enforcement. Uh, What assurances do I have as a CEO that if I don't go to the FBI, that if I just pay the Bitcoin ransom as they say, that I'll get my data back? Is that a common practice that these executives will get their data back or do they pay and then find out that their data has been compromised anyway, irrevocably in one way or another? You really have no assurances when you're dealing with cyber criminals. Uh, That being said, these cyber criminal organizations have a reputation that they like to keep up themselves. So if a, if a certain group of hackers becomes known as the people that don't give you your data back when you pay them or when you make a ransom payment, they'll have a hard time obtaining payments in the future. And 
the motive of hackers who are deploying ransomware attacks is, is purely for financial gain. You know, they're often not interested in the data itself, but they know that data is crucial to companies' ability to do business, and that's why they encrypt the data in order to force you to pay to get it back. So you say the, the motives are, are financial, and you seem to imply that these criminal organizations want to uh, maintain a certain reliability rating that they are honest criminals in a sense, that, that they are honest brokers within the world of thieving, cyber thieving or cyber, cyber ransomware, ransomware, I should say. Is that really true? Like, do they actually, like, police their brand? And, and do, you, do you find that organizations act consistently over time? Like, some hackers are reputed to be truth-tellers in a sense, and others are, you know, don't have that good of a reputation in terms of uh, adhering to their agreements? It certainly varies. We've dealt with cyber criminals that are highly responsive in their communications. Some are open to negotiating payments. If, you, if a victim doesn't have the financial means to make a payment, others are less amenable to negotiations. And we've seen attack, and we've seen attackers go dark on us when we reach out to them to make a payment or negotiate a payment. Okay, so let's say, uh, have you ever dealt with the same ransomware attacker twice? That's a good question, and it's, it's hard to say because sometimes your only indication of who you're dealing with is that Bitcoin wallet. Okay. And, and an attacker could change their Bitcoin wallet address fairly easily, but of the hundreds of data breaches that I've handled, I've, I have seen indications where we've been dealing with the same hacker on multiple instances. Not necessarily with regard to a ransomware attack, but there are often tips and certain things that you could pick up on to tell you about who you're dealing with and where they're coming from. So let's take an alternate scenario. So I'm the CEO of the same company, but instead of trying to negotiate with the the the, the hackers, the, the ransomware uh, attackers, I instead go to the FBI like uh, I'm advised I should by the FBI. What happens then? What, what are the next steps? After contacting the FBI to provide them with information that they could use for investigative purposes, the CEO's next move would likely be to contact our IT provider to assist them with the technical remediation, which would often involve taking the systems off the network and quarantining the encrypted servers or devices for future investigation. Afterwards, you would want to get in touch with your insurance carrier. Hopefully, you have cyber, cyber liability insurance, and that would cover the cost of well, usually cover the cost of making a ransom payment if you decided to do that. It would also cover the cost involved with a forensic investigation, uh, helping you retrieve and restore your data. The, the cost of legal counsel, which is obviously the role that I, that I play. And then any other costs associated with notifying consumers patients, employees, what have you, and dealing with any regulatory consequences. 
if there was a rise. Okay, so now I'm the FBI. I have this information. How likely am I to find the cyber attacker, the ransomware attacker? Probably unlikely. Uh, I know the FBI does have sophisticated methods to track down cyber criminals, and they may have a different answer than I do, but cyber criminals are notoriously hard to pinpoint. They're often coming from abroad, and that makes them increasingly difficult to track down and bring bring to justice. Okay, so there was an attack uh, last year that occurred uh, apparently from Iran, and it was called the SAMSAM, or known as the SAMSAM ransomware attacks. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Could you tell the audience a little bit about that, please? Sure. So the so SAMSAM was a specific variant of ransomware that was particularly destructive in that it was able to move from move laterally through a a company's systems without being without being detected until the victim realized that they had been attacked. And whereas ransomware attackers are typically motivated by financial gain, the the hackers behind SamSam had ulterior motives. Okay. And the victims, their targets, were predominantly municipalities across the United States, public institutions and healthcare systems. For instance, between 2015 and 2018, the SamSam attackers hit the city of Atlanta, Newark, New Jersey, the Port of San Diego, the Colorado Department of Transportation, Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center in Los Angeles, LabCorp, and Allscripts Healthcare Solutions, which is one of the biggest EMR providers in the United States. And the reason that, and what do all these organizations have in common is that they, between public institutions and cities across the United States and healthcare organizations, they are both serving the public and people in need. If a hospital is hit with a ransomware virus and can't access any patient records, that prevents doctors from treating patients who need healthcare, prevents people who are sick from getting the help they need. When a city's network infrastructure is shut down, they can't operate the same way they would if they had their, if they had access to data. So this is significant because it's one of the first times that we've seen cyber criminals focused on something else aside from that financial gain. Okay, so the Department of Justice issued uh, an indictment of these Iranian hackers. What is the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is by putting the hackers in the in the public sphere of ex- and exposing them for their for their cyber crimes. Obviously, we're not going to be able to bring cyber criminals to justice in, in the United States. Iran is not going to extradite them, but by exposing them publicly, it's almost akin to publicly shaming them, and it also signals to the global cyber criminal community that the United States takes these types of issues seriously, especially when they are impacting our public institutions and and vulnerable industries such as healthcare. Were there any other factors in the selection of targets? I I know you you said that the, the successful hack of these targets and extortion did cause a lot of havoc or could cause a lot of havoc, but are there any other factors that would go into the selection of targets? Well, in addition to the fact that 
an, an attack on a massive hospital and healthcare system could have very serious effects for very serious real life effects for people. Hospitals and healthcare are particularly vulnerable targets for cyber criminals because of their notoriously weak cybersecurity measures. Why do hospitals, you, know, you would think, oh, hospitals, they must, they must have a very strong cybersecurity. There's a lot of money that goes into hospitals, a lot of medical technology. It's, it's constantly uh, a target of you know, tech salesmen, say. And certainly with, with all the, the government involvement in it, you would think that they would have high-functioning uh, security, but uh, I guess not. Yeah, I mean, you might, you might expect them to have better cybersecurity hygiene than they do, okay. but one of the reasons is that hospitals and, and medical practices often use what we call legacy database systems, which are just older, and they also all are implementing uh, electronic medical records, an, EM, an EMR system. And that's and that's something that could be remotely accessed through a through devices that are connected to the network. The EMR is often hosted in, in a cloud, and by brute forcing a remote desktop or or guessing passwords that are weak allows a hacker to infiltrate that system and either deploy ransomware or whatever else they're going to to do in the system. Okay. So prosecuting is, I, I would guess, one way of dealing with uh, ransomware. But um, also you might want to, or some people have thought, maybe a, a good way of attacking this problem would be to figure out how to get a hold on, how to get a hold of their payments uh, in Bitcoin. So why do these ransomware attackers want to get paid in Bitcoin? And what is the Office of Foreign Asset Control trying to do about that. The reason they want to they want to be paid in Bitcoin is because cryptocurrencies are notably hard to trace and attach to a specific individual. That being said, one of the important things that the Department of Justice did in pursuing the Iranian Samsam hackers was to to infiltrate their communications and conversations with the cryptocurrency brokers that they were communicating with in order to convert bitcoin or another cryptocurrency into fiat currency there needs to be a broker that is able to make that conversion and in the doj indictment they actually named the two bitcoin brokers who were also in iran as defendants okay do you think this will have a, any noticeable impact on hacking in general, you know, particularly ransomware, if the cryptocurrencies are de-anonymized in any kind of, uh, or to any kind of extent? By making those Bitcoin wallet addresses public and associating them with the names of the cyber criminals, the Office of Foreign Asset Control not only undermined the anonymity of cryptocurrencies, but it also forbade U.S. companies and individuals from making payments to those addresses or helping them process any transactions. The reason for that being is because the U.S. government and OFAC has a policy that prohibits making payments to known criminals or terrorists. Okay. Are there any other limitations to the hackers typically asking for cryptocurrency? Well, by, the, uh, by OFAC's attempt to go after the monetization stages 
of ransomware attacks is significant because it it reflects an attempt to replicate one of the most promising techniques from from cyber crimes, which is the disincentivizing the financial motive. Okay. And here they're applying that to a new type of currency in in crypto. Okay. It also it also signals the fact that maybe cryptocurrencies are not so anonymous as we previously had thought, and by publicizing the wallet addresses of cyber criminals here, it signals that perhaps the U.S. government can regulate cryptocurrencies in in a certain sense. So essentially, the from a criminal's perspective, the weak point is trying to convert any bitcoins you have back into something a little bit more liquid, right? So, the on ramp to the you know, the worldwide financial system that is not cryptocurrency is maybe uh, a little bit fraught with being identified with peril. Would that be a, a fair characterization? That's fair. Okay. And, you know, right now there are not a ton of legitimate uses for, for cryptocurrencies, but they're, and they're primarily used for illicit activity. There's really two primary purposes behind ransomware attacks. And like I said, one is to elicit a financial payment and the other is to manipulate the cryptocurrency market. So it is fair to say that the the weak point in terms of being paid in cryptocurrency is the on-ramp to the uh, worldwide financial system that's not cryptocurrency related, that eventually you're going to have to deal with banks, so you're going to have to deal with other institutions that can convert the, the fairly non-liquid Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency into something more liquid. That That would be fair to say, right? That would be fair to say, okay. and that's what makes OFAC's announcement significant, is that it signals that cryptocurrencies are not so anonymous as we once thought, and that it's actually possible to regulate them by, by signaling that the cyber criminals who are, who are using Bitcoin wallets are not necessarily behind the veil, as they might think. For people that want to use cryptocurrencies for legal purposes which are at this point few and far between, this would actually be good news because it means that the government actually can, in a certain sense, regulate and protect and trace cryptocurrency transactions. Okay, so enforcement of ransomware breaches or, or successful enforcement of ransomware breaches could have a, uh, a salutary effect on cryptocurrency valuations. Exactly, and I think we'll see more of a pattern about it as to how that will play out over the next couple of years, especially with the fluctuating price of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and whether the indictment of the SamSam attackers will have any implications for other cyber criminals that may be wary of ending up in the, in the wrath of DOJ and, and OFAC. Okay. So... So I'm a CEO again, and I've made a payment, and the payment has gone to a, a very sophisticated criminal group that certain people maybe in the State Department might consider a terrorist organization. Do I have any other thing to worry about other than just the, the, the more mundane damage to my company in terms of finances and or breach data? Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting issue because in the case of the of the Sam Sam attackers, these were two individuals that could not necessarily 
be linked to a nation state. Compare that with the NotPetya ransomware attack that would that was prevalent back in 2017. Uh, that was a global ransomware attack that impacted the shipping giant Maersk, pharmaceutical company Merck, and other global corporations. And shortly shortly thereafter, a uh, the UK came out and linked the attack to the Russian government. Okay. And later on, the U.S., Canada, Australia followed suit, pointing a finger at the Russians for being behind this attack. Okay. The reasons for that are unclear, but the significance was that by attributing this particular ransomware variant and, cyber, and global cyber attack to a specific country, it could be deemed as an act of war. Okay, so are these active wars? They certainly seem to do a lot of damage, economic damage. Well, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. And for a government to declare that a cyber attack is an active war could have consequences for that country's companies that are impacted by it, that are, that are victims of the, of the cyber attack. In, in the case of NotPetya, there were companies, and uh, you know, specifically Mondelez, multinational food company, mm-hmm. which was impacted by NotPetya, attempted to file a claim with their insurance carrier, Zurich International, for their business interruption losses and the financial impact that the ransomware attack had on their systems and their hardware. That's why companies purchase cyber insurance, but Zurich, on the other hand, pointed to the fact that the U.S. government considered the cyber attack as an act of war and refused to pay out under their policy under an exclusion for wartime, whereas the company, the insured, viewed it as their as the fund that they were entitled to under their insurance policy for a, a privacy breach. So this is you know almost like uh, they're, they're calling it a, a force. Well, one side is calling it a force majeure, and one side is calling it um, an act of war. Could that be it? Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's definitely some, some disparity between how victims view the attacks and how governments view them. And this is the the coverage dispute is currently being litigated, but either way, it's going to set a nasty precedent and raise the questions of whether the rules of business and insurance need to be changed for the growing threat of of cyber attacks. So would you say that, um, in the near future at least, uh, insurance carriers and uh, companies that are seeking to purchase this kind of uh, cyber insurance are going to have fairly contentious negotiations, uh, potentially, over what constitutes uh, an act of war for cyber insurance purposes? Right. And and in this case, the policy specifically excluded hostile or warlike actions in a time of peace or war. And if if we become embattled in trying to always point a finger at a nation state whenever there's a massive cyber attack, that would obviously have implications for the companies that, that purchase these insurance policies. On one hand, governments and regulators have a political motivation to label cyber attacks as active war from a diplomatic standpoint, but that could have unintended consequences for their companies. So it sounds like cyber forensics is going to uh, be very determinative in, in these kind of situations where uh, insurance payout or 
you know, other forms of you know, rec recompense is determined uh, is determined by whether the company suffered, uh, you know, from a, a hostile act during peacetime. What is peacetime? What is a hostile act? Is it is it an act of war? Is it a, a vigilante? These questions sound like they're going to be very fact specific. Now, would you say that that's the case, or do you think that there might be? some overarching legislation that might cover this eventually or maybe even a treaty that covers this. Is there anything in the works that you are aware of? I do, I do know that at, at a certain point, the current administration did mention cybersecurity and make an indication to other countries, particularly China, to, to stop hacking us. You know, I don't think that's going to stop any, any cyber criminals from targeting United States, uh, because there's simply no reason for them to stop. The, okay. From their perspective, the financial gain is is too great for them to give up. And as long as there are hackers with sophisticated techniques, the U.S. will make every attempt they can to quash them. But unfortunately, technology moves quicker than the than the government can keep can keep up with both from a, an enforcement standpoint and a legislative standpoint. So you have some experience in representing Allscript. Could you tell us a little bit about your personal experience and you know, maybe what the outcome was or what you learned? Sure. So, so like I said, Allscript is a, is a U.S. company that provides EMR and medical record services, and they were impacted by SamSam. So they're cloud-based servers that housed electronic medical records for healthcare practices across the country were shut down. What that means is that hospitals, doctor's offices, and medical practices could not access patient records for about a week in some cases. I counseled many doctors and medical practices through their legal obligations arising from this data breach at the time when SamSam was being deployed. The consequences of this were significant because if you're a patient and you went to see your doctor, they would not be able to pull up your chart. They would not be able to take your insurance. Everything would have been at a halt. Doctors were reverting to paper files, which is almost laughable in today's day and age. Sure. But the real significance comes from how the U.S. government views cyber attacks, and particularly your ransomware attacks, in the healthcare sector. This is governed by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Office of Civil Rights, which has issued guidance presuming a ransomware attack to be a breach of patient information that triggers notification obligations on behalf of the organization or the practice to their patients. A caveat to that is you can avoid notification requirements if after a forensic investigation you're able to conclude that there is a low likelihood of compromise to patient information. You know, we mentioned I mentioned that the motive of ransomware attacks are always for financial gain, but here by the hackers know that there's a very high value to patient information because without it, doctors can't treat patients and patients can't receive healthcare. So that makes healthcare organizations a lucrative target for hackers. Okay. The fact that these organizations' EMR systems were hosted through all scripts on a cloud-based server made it, increase, made it particularly difficult for them to conduct their own investigation in order to determine whether patient information was actually 
stolen or obtained by the hackers or whether it was simply encrypted. As counsel for these organizations, which ranged from solo practitioners to national healthcare organizations with presence in multiple states, my role was to coordinate with all scripts what their findings were surrounding the forensic investigation that that they performed. Okay. That was difficult to do because with a with a large company that's been breached, their primary objective is not necessarily to communicate with their numerous clients the circumstances surrounding the breach, especially because they want to mitigate any reputational damage to themselves and any legal exposure, both from a civil and regulatory compliance standpoint. Ultimately, all scripts determined that there was no breach of patient information and that the data was simply encrypted, which was a positive finding for my clients because it meant that they did not have notification obligations to patients and regulators of the, of the ransomware attack. So let's say that that happens. I'm the CEO of a company and my company has uh, European clients, has American clients. Okay, so how does that impact under, say, the general data protection regulation? or maybe California's new uh, Consumer Protection Act? So the implications under, under GDPR for an organization that is breached in the United States creates a responsibility to notify European regulators and European citizens of potential compromise to their personal information. GDPR creates a much more broad definition of what is considered personal information compared to U.S. privacy law. Now, obviously, in the United States, we don't have a federal framework for privacy regulation. It's much more compartmentalized across different industries. And that's why HIPAA is one of the most pervasive privacy regulations because it governs personal and health information in an entire industry. Okay. That's why the Office of Civil Rights is one of the most aggressive regulators when it comes to enforcement actions against companies that are breached. Okay. So it, it sounds like that encryption of data is always important in determining whether this is something that you would need to provide notice to your customers or the, the data subjects involved. What, what would be considered best practices in terms of preventing ransomware attacks? Well, as far as encryption, that's not necessarily a requirement under, under HIPAA privacy law, but it's certainly advisable. And if data is encrypted, it provides a safe harbor from having to notify individuals in the case of a breach. Other best practices are to conduct frequent security assessments to identify if your network has any vulnerabilities or flaws that can allow a, a hacker to easily gain access. Strong password protections are, are key, and you'd really be surprised about how many people in, in, organ, in, large, in large organizations uh, don't have strong password hygiene and use the same credentials across multiple accounts. But as far as cybersecurity, it's really a top-down approach coming from an organization's executives collaborating with members and users and IT departments. Um, it can't just be a issue that's delegated to one person at a company or one department, but it really needs to be a collaborative effort to ensure that you have strong cybersecurity measures and knowing that even even a company with the, with the most stringent cybersecurity protections is not immune from from being hacked. Okay. So uh, in specific 
terms regarding healthcare organizations. Uh, what can they do to reduce their risk? So until now, there was not a comprehensive body of guidance for the healthcare industry in preventing and mitigating cyber risk. That, and that changed at the end of 2018 when the Department of Health and Human Services released a four-part guidance entitled Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Practices for Managing Threats and Protecting Patients. Yeah. And this was the culmination of a public and private sector partnership to address the most common threats facing the, the healthcare industry and how organizations of all different sizes can, can address them. And they listed out some of the most pervasive threats, which are email phishing attacks, ransomware attacks, loss or theft of equipment, insider and insider and accidental loss and attacks against medical devices and connected technologies. So for each category, the guidance listed the vulnerabilities that could arise and how the and the potential organizational impact and the best practices to minimize those threats. Most of those come down to education and awareness, but also from a technical standpoint to ensure that there are sufficient protections in place in terms from, from a perspective of asset management, networks, incident responses, cybersecurity policies. By taking all these factors into account, it was a step in the right direction for healthcare organizations to become aware of the steps they would need to take in order to protect themselves against the growth cyber threats. So in, in, in the SAMSAM attack, there were a lot of municipalities, a lot of governments, local governments, like you said, Atlanta, City of Newark, you know, other, other governmental entities that were subject to these cyber attacks. Do you find that governmental en entities are more, more vulnerable than a company? Do they have poorer uh, data hygiene than, say, you know, a big corporation? When you represent a municipality rather than a, a company? Are there any different tax that you take? Uh, are there, is there any different way of looking at the issue than just by representing a corporation? I think cybersecurity, like any asset at a company or organization, comes down to, comes down to money. Bank of America can spend millions, billions of dollars on securing their infrastructure, thereby decreasing the likelihood that they're going to be hacked. But a municipal government just doesn't have those means to do so. So in turn, that mean, that leads them to have weaker cybersecurity protections than a multinational corporation, which in turn makes them more vulnerable to being attacked. Like you know, like we discussed when it comes to the the SamSam attackers, they were equally interested in eliciting a financial payment, and I think the figure was that they caused over thirty million dollars in in losses to their victims, but they were also interested in crippling U.S. infrastructure. So by hitting our cities and our ports and our hospitals, they essentially succeeded in doing that. All right, so this has been a very interesting conversation. First of all, where can, let's say I'm a CEO once again of an organization and I'm concerned about my ransomware risks, uh, where can I go to find out more? So there's, my firm has significant guidance on our website mm -hmm. and we have resources and publications addressing cyber threats and ransomware attacks. With regards to the healthcare organization, 
we've counseled numerous clients of all sizes in data in data breaches. So it's something we're very accustomed to and familiar and familiar with. There are an increasing number of organizations catering to companies in the healthcare industry to perform security assessments, risk analyses, and those would identify any threats or vulnerabilities that the company that that organizations have and how to best address those. Okay. And how can listeners contact you? They could read they could find me on LinkedIn. They can go to the website of Wilson Elser which has my bio and contact information and if you have any questions. Okay, and, and this information will, of course, be in the show notes as well. Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. And you have been listening to the New York City Bar Association's podcast on information technology and cyber law. And my name is Tim Peterson, your host and engineer, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Tim. See okay. you soon.